You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. So today we have a special episode for Inverse Podcasts. I'm normally recording from the stolen land of the Susquehannock in the city of Harrisburg in Pennsylvania, but today I'm recording from the campus of Eastern Mennonite Seminary in Harrisonburg, Virginia. This week, Inverse has been partnering with Eastern Mennonite Seminary to co-host and co-present the School for Leadership Training Conference on the theme of race, place, and catastrophe. And we are excited to be recording live before a hybrid audience, both in person and those joining in from around the world. And we have a special guest today, the Dean Kelly Brown Douglas, and I wanna give her a proper introduction. The very Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas was named Dean of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary and Professor of Theology at Union in September 2017. She was named the Bill and Judith Moyers Chair in Theology in November 2019. She also serves as the Canon Theologian at the Washington National Cathedral and Theologian in Residence at Trinity Church Wall Street. Dean Douglas is widely published in national and international journals and other publications. Uh, Some of her books include The Black Christ, Sexuality in the Black Church, A Womanist Perspective, What's Faith Got to Do With It, Black Bodies, Christian Souls, Black Bodies in the Black Church, A Blue Slant, Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God, and her most recent work, which just released right at the tail end of 2021, and it is entitled Resurrection Hope, A Future Where Black Lives Matter. Uh, We could go on and on and on about her bio because of her extensive work, um, but I think that we'll stop there so that we have some time for conversation. But I do want to mention that both Jared and I have been Uh, following the work of Kelly Brown Douglas for a long time, and we each have had the opportunity to meet her in person. Um, I had the pleasure of sharing a meal with her and introducing Dean Douglas at Maasai University when she gave a lecture at our Humanities Symposium, and I think I've run into her a couple of times at AAR as well. Um, Jared has met Dean Douglas at Proxter Institute on Haley's Farm. I think he said it was like 2017 or 2018, Um, and since that moment, I know that Jared has been wanting to bring Kelly Brown Douglas on since he met her. Um, And so me joining a little bit later on the podcast, um, we're really excited about having this opportunity to have this conversation. And so uh, welcome to Inverse Podcast. Well, it's more than a pleasure to be with both of you. And uh, I remember both of uh, the encounters with each of you. And so it is truly uh, an honor. And of course, when you invited me, because I remember our wonderful conversations before, I immediately said yes. Uh, and so congratulations on this podcast, which is very uh, important and brings us into important conversations. And so thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, Dean, Rev. Doc, how would you like us to address you the rest of the time? You may call me if you're uh, comfortable, Kelly. It's, 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 oh. it's fine. 
Thanks, Kelly. Well, um, we're super excited about um, your new text and we're hoping that you'll sketch a little bit that project. Um, uh, your incredible text that I actually have in my hot little hands right now, um, Stand Your Ground, there was this, which really is a word for this moment um, and the parallels to the realities of white supremacy in Australia are as poignant as they are prophetic. Um, there's this phenomenal section in it um, called The Force of Resurrection. And if you don't mind, I'll read just two sentences of your own words back at you. You write, the resurrection is God's definitive victory over crucifying powers of evil. Ironically, the power that attempts to destroy Jesus on the cross is actually itself destroyed by the cross. We would love to have you just sketch a little about this new project, how it connects to these words, this moment in history, and uh, how, how it has impacted you. Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Jarrett, and uh, that you would uh, raise that book, Stand Your Ground, I think is, is a good starting point because uh, in so many respects, this uh, new work, if you will, Resurrection Hope, picks up from there with uh, deeper uh, questions or different set of questions, if you may, because here's the thing, and, and you started with resurrection. In a sense, resurrection's the whole ball game, right? That if, if there is in fact no promise of life after crucifying the crucifying realities of the cross, then what sense does it make for those of us who find ourselves on the underside of justice in these crucifying realities? What sense does it make for us to, to trust, to, to have faith in a God of, of justice if it ends on the cross? And yet one of uh, the things, of course, that we recognize in our own uh, history, in our own experience, in our own realities, and when, particularly when we're talking in this regard in terms of white supremacy and anti-Blackness, which I develop more deeply in uh, Resurrection Hope, is that we seem to be in this endless cycle where, in fact, in our world, and certainly in our uh, nation, black lives do not matter. <laughs> and, you, and, and when Stand Your Ground emerged, that emerged at the time of uh, Trayvon Martin's uh, murder and the murder of uh, Michael Brown, and we, can, and, and, and we can go on. And what we see is that over, and we had a black president then, and <laughs> what we've seen over time is that uh, it, the, assaults and attacks upon black life have only intensified and we have seen the what we could could have expected the sort of uh pushback or uh the backlash to having a black president which the proportional black backlash was and uh the uh, emergence of a white supremacist president mm -hmm. with a mega vision and so the question really became for me which was the question that my son kept probing uh and so the book of resurrection hope is framed around these conversations will black lives ever really matter 
Mm. And so we are stuck in this crucifying moment. We are stuck on the cross. And I always believe that we, as uh, those of us who are a part of the Christian faith, we have a crucifixion at the center of our faith and, 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 and we need to take that seriously. But in, and in taking that seriously, of course, we understand the realities of God entering into history and we can see God in the faces of a Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, et cetera. But if it stops there, What's the point of our faith? What's the point of our hope? And so this faith journey for me uh, from, if you will, stand your ground to resurrection hope was trying to make sense and understand if the resurrection really, really did matter. If there was really room for resurrection uh, hope and, and or if these were just sort of theological words, right? And, uh, but that nothing that really made sense in the life of those that live in a nation and yay, a world where black lives have yet to matter. Good. Um, I've already told you before that I've taught a stand your ground in class uh, with my students, but um, I'm so deeply looking forward to introducing them to resurrection hope. Um, I know that this is so timely and so needed. And I think these are certainly for my black students, um, some of the big questions that they're wrestling with. And so, yeah, it's, it's the, the right word for the right time. And so thank you for your good work. Um, this conference that we've been doing is on the themes of race, place, and ecological crisis. And I'm kind of curious, uh, as you just thinking on the fly, like, what do you think followers of Jesus need to understand about the overlapping forces of white supremacy in our ecological crisis? Well, thank you. And that's a, a, a good question. But here's the thing. I think that if we look at this moment in which we find ourselves, where we have the convergence of two pandemics, right? We have the convergence of the health pandemic that is COVID-19 and all of its many variants with the convergence of the long ignored uh, pandemic that is white supremacy with, with its addendums uh, of anti-blackness, et cetera. Now, if we look at the way in which these two pandemics have converged and impacted the lives of black people and other people of color, as well as uh, ec economically dispossessed persons, poor persons, then we can begin to really understand the intersecting realities of race, uh, place, if you will, uh, and, our and, and our environment, environmental and ecological crises. Because what we find first when we're talking about the environment and the ecosystem, let's talk about that first in terms of our social cultural environment. And we find that uh, brown and black persons are disproportionately trapped in conditions that don't foster life, but indeed foster death. These are conditions of poverty. And so we have an ecosystem, a sociological, cultural, ethical uh, uh, ecosystem that fosters death. So it is no wonder that you see a disproportionate, uh, a, a disproportionate impact of COVID on Black and Brown lives because they are in an ecosystem that indeed fosters death, not life, with the comorbidities that go along with that these comorbidities of lack of health care, lack of recreational opportunities, lack of housing, et cetera, et cetera. 
Then when you bring that reality together and look at that ecosystem in which they are trapped, which I call a crucifying ecosystem, right? In mm -hmm. which they are trapped, we can then begin to also see the way in which the uh, ecology, the environment itself, the wider environment has a disproportionate impact upon their lives, not to speak of the fact that when we talk about environmental abuses, the way in which we have done harm to our environment, continue to do harm to our environment, those systems, those structures, those institutions that produce things like carbon emission, those structures, those institutions that presumably uh, the sewage plants and those kind of things, where are they typically placed? They become another comorbidity when it comes to the lives of poor and uh, black and brown people who are disproportionately uh, people trapped in poverty. We also discover that when we have these env this environmental impact that is a part of uh, our ecological environmental crisis that we find ourselves in climate change, et cetera, that it has a disproportionate impact upon those people who are already trapped in ecosystems that don't produce life. So we have to begin to understand the interactive and intersecting realities uh, between the ecological crisis, the environmental crisis, and the ecosystems in which we find brown and black people trapped because of the uh, color of their skin, because of white supremacy, because of anti-blackness. And so unless we begin to understand the impact on the people below, the people who are on the very underside of these realities, we are not going to be able to begin to do the work that we need to do to create the environments, not only sociologically and culturally, but in our climate that produce life or foster life and not death. Ooh. Wow. Again, uh, <laughs> friends, this is a primer. We, we haven't even opened up the scriptures yet. <laughs> Kelly, we're wondering, uh, would you ground this conversation um, uh, in a passage of scripture for inverse, uh, we want to be found amongst those in the book of Acts that were accused of turning the world upside down for all the right reasons instead of the wrong reasons. Uh, would you um, ground us in a particular text and help us read it in ways that do that work? Yes, thank you. And some may be surprised that the uh, text that I chose to uh, ground us in, and perhaps not uh, for those of you who understand that I'm a, a, a cradle Episcopalian, but it's the Magnificat, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And we find the Magnificat uh, in uh, Luke, Gospel of Luke. And actually, while I, I will start a little before the Magnificat itself with uh, Mary's visit to Elizabeth and then go to the Magnificat. And so let us uh, begin at verse 39 and uh, move to verse 50, uh, 55, 56. At the time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
as at the sound of your greeting, as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For God has been mindful of the humble state of God's servant. From now on, all generations will be blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is God's name. God's mercy extends to those who fear God from generation to generation. God has performed mighty deeds with God's arms. God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. God has brought down rulers from their throne, but has lifted up the, whole, uh, the humble. God has filled the hungry with good things, but God has sent the rich away empty. God has helped God's servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and Abraham's descendants forever. Even as God has said to our fathers, Mary stayed with said to our fathers, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. And that, by right, the we're way, we're looking forward the, in a little uh, bit to having that conversation. Um, but before we get there, one of the things that we love to do is um, to hear. Uh, people's story, because we deeply believe that there's an intersection between story and theology and how we even read the texts. Right. Um, so I'm really curious to hear, like, when do you first remember encountering the Bible? <laughs> you know, the question, uh, really, you know, that's like a, a, the questions that uh, someone asked, uh, do you remember when we became friends and and you've been <laughs> friends for so long that it seems like that person's always been in your life and you don't remember uh when you became friends and so i guess first i would say i don't remember when the bible wasn't in my life mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean that i encountered it as a book to study but i knew that it was from my earliest memories a sacred text and my Parents were always lifting something, if you will. I know this is amazing for Episcopalians, but lifting something, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, if you will, uh, from the Bible. So I knew that the story of Jesus, who am I, I can't remember not ever knowing, uh, came from the Bible. And so perhaps my earliest memories of encountering the Bible were in Sunday school. Uh, uh, and and the church. And as I have told before and written about as a child, I loved going to church. Uh, so much so that even when my parents weren't going, I would uh, go into the bedroom and ask them to take me to church, much to my sibling's chagrin. Uh, uh, and I would stay for the morning service, for Sunday school and the afternoon service. And for those of you who are thinking, oh my gosh, as a child, she was in church all day. I remind you, I was an Episcopalian, so I was out by noon, but uh, <laughs> I was still able to sit through uh, two services. But in all seriousness, that's where I remember uh, really encountering uh, the Bible and more particularly, more especially encountering uh, Jesus and stories of Jesus. And the story that uh, really stuck with me most and which as, as a young person, as a child that really captured, if you will, my imagination 
was the the Christmas narrative of Jesus being born in a manger. And I remember crying when I would hear that story when we would sing the song away in a manger. Uh, no uh, room for a crib. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head because I couldn't imagine as a child how anyone would allow a baby to be born in a manger in a barn. And I remember every Christmas, uh, it's like it, it laying in my bed. And this memory, by the way, Drew, is just coming back to me. I would lay in my bed at night uh, before Christmas and or like on Christmas Eve because we'd go to church and we'd hear the story. And I would lay in my bed and I'd go, I promise, Jesus, I'll find you a crib. Mm. Uh, uh, and so... Uh, and that's just come back to me and I, I, I can see myself. And so th that, that image of uh, Jesus was the first profound image uh, that I carried with me and continue uh, to carry and is shaped uh, in so many respects my uh, theological journey because I began to identify the Jesus that was born in a manger. Uh, with the children, and, and I won't go into the story and take us a field, but I remember also encountering children that uh, were in, trapped, as I saw it then, in what I call now crucifying realities. And I uh, equated that Jesus in a manger with, with those, those children. And that uh, has been, I've held myself since a, a small child accountable to those children that I encountered wow. on a drive through Dayton. And that has centered my journey. And uh, I have imperfectly tried to continue to hold myself accountable to those manger, if you will, realities. Mm. Oh, they're precious memories. And, and thank you for trusting them, trusting us with them. Um, I, I spent a, a year, Kelly, as the um, mission advisor to Her Grace, the Archbishop Kay Goldsworthy. So you're Episcopalian, or as we'd say in this part of the Anglican community, in this right. part of the world. Um, they, they cut a little deeper for me than they do for both. <laughs> <laughs> the the um, question we like to follow on um, with guests from that is, do you remember encountering the Bible as a force that was liberative or oppressive or would you have named it as something different than that? Oh, no, I always remember it uh, as a force that was liberative. Uh, uh, and in fact, uh, as, I as I got older and began to really recognize the way in which the Bible had been used to oppress, and especially uh, Black people, uh, I knew because of the way in which I had encountered the Bible, and I'll say something more about that in a minute, that what they were saying about the God in the Bible, I, I knew that 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 was not right. And so mm -hmm. because I had already had an opportunity to come to know, if you will, Jesus and engage the liberative, liberating, loving narrative of God, uh, that I knew what those who would use the Bible as a tool to uh, oppress and to uh, degrade the sacred humanity of another, be it black people, be it LGBTQ, 
uh, I plus persons, I be it women, I knew that that was wrong instinctively. I didn't have the biblical or theological tools to prove it, but I didn't need it because I knew that, that if God was God, if this was the God of the Jesus born in a manger, they were wrong. Mm -hmm. And I also knew, and as you talk about my encounters with the Bible, I can't remember not knowing about the Bible because my grandmother, uh, particularly my maternal grandmother with whom I was very close, always had an open Bible, always read from the Bible. The Bible was that which bought this woman who came up from the South during the great migrations, ended up working as an elevator operator on minimal uh, salary, but always had faith, always had joy, had dreams for her, uh, her grandchildren. I knew that the Bible and the God that she encountered in that Bible was one that kept her going. So, mm. so I never had any uh, sort of indication that the God of the Bible was an oppressive God and that the Bible wasn't a, uh, an empowering liberative tool until I began to really encounter as I grew older, the raw forms from my own experience of white supremacy and anti-blackness and those who would dare to use the Bible uh, as a weapon against my very, uh, my very embodied being. And so, uh, so no, it's, it's always amazing to me. And I know that the Bible can be used and there's plenty there to be used as a weapon of terror. And there are stories that we sometimes simply need to let go be, and uh, no longer hold any accountability or, or authority for us because of their potential to be used oppressively. Uh, it's a complex book with many stories, one of the stories of which is God. And it is our task to continue to tease out of the Bible, the story that is God's. Uh, but that story I know is a liberative loving story. Good. Yeah, so now as you share your story and talk about your experience of from very early on, which, you know, this knowing and encountering a liberating God, and yet I'm sure you encounter folks who that's not their first encounters, right? Um, in <laughs> fact, there are a lot of folks who are traumatized or trying to figure out like, can I come back to the texts? Is there a way I can enter? So one of the things that we're interested in is uh, like thinking about like, what from your story and your experience has shaped your lens for reading the Bible that might be a meaningful gift that you can offer to others? Like what each of us, right, have lived experiences, basically in short, like what are your hermeneutics that developed out of your lived experience for how uh, you approach scripture? And, and that might be at least offered graciously as a gift to others to consider. Yeah, first, thank you, Gendu. <clears throat> first, uh, let me uh, say this, that this question of can I come back to the Bible or can I come back to uh, the church, this question, which is a deep uh, existential question of, of faith, uh, this question is a question that I've asked uh, and that really frames and is the journey of resurrection hope. Because here's the thing that we know. We are trapped in a culture of sin. 
culture that is white supremacy and the interacting and intersecting realities of anti-blackness, the culture that is, let's say, white heteropatriarchal uh, uh, anti-blackness. And so because of that culture of sin and people who uh, lose their moral core, uh, they do moral harm and moral injury. And and spiritual in, uh, 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 injury, and so you know we each at have to ask and 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 those questions. Can I stay within a tradition that oppresses? Can I continue to believe and hold as sacred a text that allows people to oppress? We have to work our way through those questions for ourselves and see if we can find a, a liberative healing strand. And we may or may not be able to. And I always try to remind myself that, that what people say about God, even those of us who talk about a liberative God, our words about God are not God. <laughs> that the way in which people use the Bible as a, the words that people have about text in the Bible, or they have to always be excavated, right? And our words about who God is in the Bible is not who God is <laughs> in the Bible. Even the words of those, those witnesses that are giving faithful testimony, trying to give faithful testimony about the revelation of God, they are God, there is this built in, as I like to say, catch 22 in the, in the revelation of God in itself, that we have a God, which is a part of what the Magnificat reminds us that enters into history. So to make God self known, but here's the trick. The moment God does that, right? Then our subjective realities come to bear in trying to understand that very revelation. So while the revelation is contextual, it is also the moment we, it is re, we have a revelation that God makes itself known to human beings trapped in a culture of sin with limited perspectives, it becomes problematic. And I try to, re, I remind myself of that. And, 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 and that's why I was on this journey to say, is this resurrection hope stuff real? to try to dig underneath the crucifying realities of the cross in which we are trying to navigate to find God. And so when you say, is there an experience that I can share? I share and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be self-promoting, but that experience really is the journey that I, I share in Resurrection Hope because I, I am wrestling at the teetering, teetering and not knowing where I'm gonna end up until, and I really didn't, until I sort of got to the end of the book, teetering on the edge of no faith, teetering. And so I tried to find a way, not to, not to, not to claim faith, but try to find a way to understand what, if it, it, this whole faith thing, you know, it's faith seeking understanding. I'm trying to understand, and I don't know if I'm going to come out at the end and say, you know what, this is kind of foolish. Uh, you know, having faith in a loving, liberative uh, God who promises uh, justice for all, because I'm not going to see it in my lifetime. Uh, and so that I share my journey is that journey 
of resurrection hope, uh, uh, a future where Black Lives Matter. Wow. Well, Doc Kelly, we, we'd love to give you permission to, to excavate some, um, to, to turn to this text and um, uh, help us wrestle with it some. So any which way you'd like to do that, um, we are all ears. <laughs> Yeah. You, well, you know, it's a surprising text to me even that uh, it's I've uh, landed on it more and more. And, and I will confess because, of course, it is a text uh, read particularly uh, on Advent 4 uh, in the Episcopal lectionary. And I found myself being called upon to preach uh, from that text. And even though I've written about it before in uh, particularly in a book, The Blue Slant. When I saw that I, it was the text on the lectionary for that day, I'm like, oh, Lord, why me? Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, that's when you try to look for and see, well, maybe there's something in the Hebrew Testament or something in the colic that I can preach from and not this. But it, 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 it forced me back into it. Uh, and, uh, and here's what I discovered in, in short or why now this really becomes such a meaningful uh, text for me. One, as I just suggested, it reminds us that our God is a God, when we call our God an incarnate God, you know, it's theological language to remind us that our God is a God who enters into history into human history and that the incarnate love of God is not an abstract notion in our heads of God's love, but it is a love that plays itself out in history, loving us into loving, right? Mm. Loving us into loving. That's the first thing that this whole scene you see between Mary and Elizabeth, it, 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 it reminds us it's, 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 it's not starting in the cosmos, if you will. It's starting in embodied realities as an embodied reality. The other thing is, is it reminds us of the contextuality, I like to say, of the incarnation itself. We, when we talk about history, when we talk about human history, we aren't talking about that in some universal abstract way. We, humans engage history, make history through particularities, through particular contexts. Ah, and if we're going to encounter God in history, we can't encounter God floating over history in some universal way. If we're going to understand the incarnate love of God, God, we have to understand that in a particular way as God, that is, as God enters into a particular historical experience. Uh, God does that through these two women and in particular through Mary. Now imagine this that Mary, this woman, this young woman, probably between the age of 12 and 14, because that's when uh, most women at that time, uh, girls uh, were moved from their father's house to their father's authority, to their husband's house, to their husband's authority, usually a husband by their father's own choosing. So we know that this is not only a gravely patriarchal society, but a society in which women have no power, no respect, no agency, no voice apart from men. Woe be upon a woman if she is a widow, right? 
Uh, uh, and if indeed you find yourself with child outside of wedlock and and possibly with child with someone that you aren't betrothed to that is not your husband well you could indeed have been stoned to death right so my point being here is that at every turn God enters into history from the vantage point through the experience of those who are the least of the least of the least of these. The, the uh, revelation, the con context of the revelation is itself revelatory because what it allows us to understand is that if we are to really understand and appreciate the profound love of God and what it means for God to love us into loving, what that is what it means for God to love us into that just future that God promises us all, we can only understand the ra radicality, the liberty radicality and life-affirming nature of that love from the vantage point of those people who are considered the most unlovable and deemed the most unlovable in our society. Who better it would understand the meaning of God's love that is justice except those who have not experienced that justice because those who are not on the underside of justice but indeed experience privileges from unloving unjust systems tend to confuse privilege with justice. Mm -hmm. And so, so we see again in Mary that we are reminded that it must begin with those who are on the very bottom, those deemed unlovable, those deemed essential laborers, but not mm. essential human beings. Right. Wow. So that's so proximity. God's love, it, incarnate love is proximate with with those people. And in that regard, you see, Mary sets the stage for what we're going to see with the child that is born. And so 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 we go. They're the ones that are favored. Here's the other thing, of course, that we discover. Who would have thunk that God would have come in through this this woman? God's because because it breaks all standards, all of of all societal standards, all societal norms of who's worthy to bear the reality of God, right? Ah, it pulls us toward expanding our moral imaginary of what's possible, being pregnant, I say, with impossible impossibilities. Mm. God calls, loves us into loving, thus expanding our moral imaginary of what the world can look like. And God is not trapped in the standards and the mores, the laws, the policies, the ideologies of our times. God is not limited by our understanding of justice. God calls us to the impossible possibilities, being pregnant with the impossible possibilities, right? And then finally, in, 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 in short, and uh, uh, I'll be brief, we see in the Magnificat, right? We see this, what we often call the reversals, right? That, uh, that the uh, 
The high and mighty will be pulled down from their thrones. The rich will walk away empty and the hungry uh, will be filled, right? And we, we talk about this, we, and we see these reversals throughout the gospel, throughout Jesus' life uh, and ministry. And we call that, we talk about this inverse, uh, this reverse relationship. But here's the thing that I like to say, that we aren't talking about really flipping the world upside down so that those that were privileged are now the privilege uh, unprivileged are now the privileged and vice versa that the least that that the uh first or last and the last or first ah what we're really talking about is a kind of parity if you will and that is a calling of people back to their very sacred creation Here's the thing my younger sister likes to say, we are all dressed up dirt, right? <laughs> we are each and every one of us children of God, and that's a pretty darn good thing. But those of us who would be live into the privileges of this culture of sin that is white supremacist, hetero, anti-Black patriarchy, those who live into the privileges of that have betrayed their very created humanity. So wow. they have to be bought back down off of their daggone throne. They there has to be this self-emptying, this kenosis, so that they can once again claim the sacredness of their humanity. At the same time, those who are, are, who are on the underside of these realities, their sacred humanity has been also betrayed by those who would indeed dehumanize and denigrate them and God lifts them up and causes them sacred so that the first are last, the last are first in God's uh, just future because there are no first, there are no last. Everybody is treated as the sacred children of God's that they are. So the reversal we see is bringing some down and pulling some up so that we all honor and live into the very sacredness of who we were created to be. And so that's, to me, that is encapsulated in the Magnificat itself, as uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, the per Peruvian theologian, likes to say, that it is a song about the God's love. And for me, it is a song that sets the stage for us of the Jesus that is coming into the world that reminds us and tells us about a God who loves us into loving. And what does that mean? It means loving us into being proximate with the people, the Marys of our world. It, it, it loves us into these being uh, pregnant with impossible possibilities of what justice would look like. And it loves us into loving, and that is into a parity, into being uh, uh, a parity one with another, and thus in living back into relationship of what it means for us to all be sacred creatures of God. Oh, so good. That's so good. And, and you Ooh. know, it's, it's fascinating, especially as you're talking about like calling people back to their sacred humanity. And I think about, and I've said this before, like the rhetoric that gets used sometimes out in the public square, when people begin to actually um, invite those who've been lowly to take their place and, and bring in down the thrones that sometimes the language that gets used is, oh, you're marginalized. Like there's a lot of that rhetoric, right? Like stop right. marginalizing white men um, and, and why. Are you, and, and so one of the things like 
that's fascinating is the way that the language of marginalization gets employed when we're really talking about decentralization and actually inviting people into their full humanity, right? And that's, that's right. I love that you're getting at that. Mm. Yeah, no, no, that's that's right. And you know what? It's, uh, I don't even like the language. I want to invite those that have betrayed their full humanity. And we have to remember that the oppressors, my goodness, you, as James Baldwin used to say, mm -hmm. you're, you're, it's your humanity that's actually at stake. I'm trying mm -hmm. to help y'all. My, my struggle to be free is really trying to free y'all so that you can live into your humanity and not recognizing that your humanity has been betrayed and is at stake every time you live into what it means to be white, et cetera, et cetera. And, but what, you know, and, and I like to say that Jesus, it, don't, you don't have to invite me into my full humanity. I'm <laughs> going to claim it. And Jesus yeah. calls us to claim it. And, and, and so I don't like this language in that regard uh, for when we've got those who enjoy privileges of that they're gonna uh, help me to live into my full humanity. No, no, no. I'm going to help you by claiming mine. Ooh. Kelly, I'm not an Episcopalian. This is this is impacting me differently. I'm having to fight like from falling down on the ground and somebody putting a modesty cloth over the top of me because I don't know how I'm <laughs> going to fall. This is this is powerful stuff. Like um, uh, as you say that, um, both both Drew and I were deeply impacted by the work and witness of Dr. Vincent Harding, um, who yes. always insisted we call him Uncle Vincent. And uh, when I would use words like privilege. And he's very slow, mild, um, uh, and, and yet an, an intensity of love, which um, uh, I've encountered few people in my life. He would say, Jared, find another word from benefiting from the oppression of others. He, he, he would stop me in conversation and say, don't, don't use privilege to, to find another word. I'm, I'm fascinated. Um, uh, so many people uh, like we look to you as one of the voices that is um, uh, leading on the forefront of intersections of uh, a number of issues that others keep separate. Um, as you're doing so, and um, uh, so many of us are aware that there are cheaper imitations in the public square of such analysis which you've just provided, how do we continue to, to ground ourselves in practice um, rather than this become um, cheap takes and um, uh, 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 Twitter call outs and, and that kind of, what, what word would you have for those of us who, who want to take this seriously, but know that there's this imitation that is easier to fall into? Yeah, you know, and that's where I say we, we take seriously two things uh, in our Christian faith, the core of the, the central symbol, which is the cross, and which points us to all these things which I've just talked about. And the fact that we're talking about an incarnate God. And so that our first thing is that we aren't, this isn't about calling people into belief of certain doctrines. That's not what faith is all about. Uh, uh, it's about calling people into trusting the promise of God in a just future, which means if we trust it, that 
we will then partner with God in mending the world of those very things that act as a barrier to God's just future. Partnering with a God that works in history. And in as much as we don't do that, we have betrayed what we claim to be, who we claim to be as people of faith. Faith is about trust in a God that has promised a just future for all of God's creatures. And, and as far as I know, that's everybody that has breath or has ever had breath. And unless someone can prove to me otherwise, I'm a hold to that. And no one's been able to do it yet. And if we really trust that, then faith is about that partnering with God. Now, you know, so people say, well, you know, I can't fix the world. God don't ask us to fix the world. God asks us simply to be on the journey toward a more just future in our own little garden of the world in which God has planted us and given us to live. Where do we begin? Jared, here's where I like to begin. Not only sort of personally, and then it moves out, right? Every major the major uh, world religion, and I don't know every religion, but let's, so I'm talking in generalities, but what we know is that most religious uh, systems have some form of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I like to talk about, talking about inverse, <laughs> an inverse kind of golden rule. Don't withhold from another that which you would not want withheld from yourself. Ask people, do you want a decent home to live in? I don't, every time I've asked that question, I don't see anyone that says no. They raise their hand, yeah, yeah, I do, I do. Do you want food? Oh, yeah, I do. Do you want health care? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Do you want a safe environment that will nurture life for yourself and your children in a safe environment is a just environment. A just environment is a safe environment. Oh yeah, 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 I do. You wanna be able to bird watch and not be assaulted? Oh yeah, 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 I do. Go on and on and on. Then don't withhold from another that which you would not want withheld from yourself and then go about creating a world and a society that does not withhold from another that which you would not want withheld from yourself. That's the beginning. The beginning of living into the love that is God's. That is what it means for God to love us into loving. That's the beginning of living into our faith journey of partnering with God, because guess what? We aren't withholding from another the very love of God that we don't want withheld from ourselves. That's how we get from the abstract to the real. Kelly, I'm really curious to hear um, uh, like what sustains you in terms of like what are some of the 
cultural and spiritual resources that sustain you it could be music art, habits out of anything uh what 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 do you draw on um from your own traditions and life it's different things on different days <laughs> and, and 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 that is the truth and uh uh one thing for sure, this morning I woke up listening to uh, Nina Simone mm. uh, uh, and, and Etta James. And I will confess that I woke up listening to Nina Simone and Etta James as I was waking up on my uh, little exercise, the, the now popular exercise bike Peloton and, and listening to their music. And I felt like a little Nina and a little Etta James and, 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 uh, and that to get my day going the that the music of the folk i tell you uh sustains me the, the other thing and i've written about this and that sustains me really on those days and 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 it's i talk about it in in uh the book those days when i'm really at wit's end and in this time that we find ourselves uh, with this reality of these two pandemics coming together that just further assault all life, but especially black and brown lives and reminding us and in, in this political world in which we are in, in which it is clear that black lives don't matter. I mean, let's just start with black vote, they don't matter. Uh, uh, most of our uh, disproportionate amount of our children are trapped in uh, public school systems that people have ignored. Uh, they're the throwaway kids. We are the essential workers, not the essential human beings. What, and, and it just like, is there any end in sight? It's like, really God? Uh, uh, and that I must say that sustains me is remembering Sometimes I go back and I read narratives, remembering that we came from a people, an enslaved people, didn't see themselves as slaves, they were enslaved, who fought for freedom, even when they knew they were never, ever, ever going to breathe a free breath. They knew that they would die enslaved and would not enjoy freedom, but they fought for freedom anyhow. They fought for freedom that they knew they would never see, and I don't mean to rhyme, but they knew would be a reality because they believed in the freedom that was the justice of God. And because they kept fighting, you and me, Drew, were here talking to one another, enjoying a freedom that they fought for. It's made me appreciate in a different way Martin Luther King Jr.'s mountaintop speech, right? When he says, I may not get there with you. Mm -hmm but we're gonna to get to the promised land. That's the legacy 
speaking of an enslaved people said, I, I may not know the freedom. I may not be free and get there with you, but we're gonna get to the promised land. That's the resurrection hope you see. And when I remember my enslaved forebears, and sometimes I gotta call on them and remember them to keep me going. Well, I, 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 I wish we could talk all day, but I know you have a busy <laughs> schedule, um, but we just wanna thank you for joining us in this conversation. This has been really meaningful. Mm. Jared, do you wanna add anything? Uh, Kelly, you have no idea what your work and witness means to so many of us around the world. Um, the, the, the courage, um, the, the strength, um, the imagination um, that you gift us with as, as you struggle with such integrity. Um, so thank you for the way that uh, you have allowed uh, your brilliance to be of service mm -hmm. to the rest of us. We, we deeply appreciate you. Well, I am deeply humbled by that. <laughs> and I thank you for this conversation and the work that you're both doing to really move us just a little bit closer uh, to the promise of God in a just future. So thank you, uh, Jared. Thank you, uh, Drew. And I am humbled and honored to be a part of this conversation. Kelly, if we Take may care. ask before you go, I know that you are a dean and you're also a doctor, but there's a reverend in there as well. I'm wondering if um, you would bless us as you'd go. Ah, thank you. And yes, I will. And so let us go forth into the world, showing forth and rejoicing in the love that is God's, a love loving us into loving our very selves, and honoring our very sacred creaturehood so that we can sing that song of Mary's. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God our Savior. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.